Neil Helm, um, you're the CEO of OzForex. You've been there for seven or eight years now. Um, I know you can't talk about the results, and I won't ask you that. So I also note the results are coming out in November, so please don't ask Neil about performance because he can't answer you. Um, but some metrics that I pulled from the, the, the last results. So you are an international business. You've got roughly 200 staff. You've got roughly 150,000 clients. Yep. Um, your turnover is around 80 million, uh, and you're growing by around 40% per annum. Uh, your profit seems to be 20 million plus. You've got 150 million in the bank. I mean, these are incredible numbers. So, um, and we're not going to ask you about performance, but it's really just to give some context to, to the guys in the room. I mean, this, uh, these guys were started from a, a sort of bedroom in the northern beaches in 1998, and it's now this sort of powerhouse financial company. So we really want to hear how you got to that point. So how about we start with the basics? Um, what does Oz4X do? Okay, can everyone hear me? Is that okay? Does that come across? Okay. Um, we're an international payments company. So we serve, service both consumers and small businesses. Um, and we also provide a payment solution to third parties. So you may have heard we support uh, Macquarie, ING Direct, TravelX and MoneyGram in providing that sort of service to their customers. We've got about 230 staff, um, got six locations now, um, and we, um, the, the kind of the proposition is that people use our service because we're price competitive, um, we're transparent about our fees and our margins, we give fantastic customer service, and we're an easy to use platform, and that's fundamentally the model we're running. We're really trying to, and I apologise to anyone from the banks in here, but we're really trying to take customers from the banks we're not trying to compete with the other non-bank providers out there because we pretty much offer a very similar proposition. We're actually just trying to offer a better solution and a better offering than what you get from a bank. Um, so I normally ask a question at these sort of things, and I haven't done many of these, so it may fall flat, but how many of you have done international payment in the last sort of two years? And keep your hand up if you used your bank, and then keep your hand up if you've had a reasonably ordinary experience with your bank. Okay, so I mean, you're our target market because um, we think we offer something which is unique and slightly different from what the banks are offering. So that's what we do. Um, so how, how, right, out of the start? Yeah. So <laughs> tell us about the story. How did it get from two guys in uh, Northern Beaches to to this powerhouse today? Yep. Uh, full disclosure, I wasn't one of the guys who started the company, so I can kind of give you my background, but I can give you the, the company background because I know it pretty well. So I used to work at Bankers Trust, and there's a gentleman there called Matt Gilmore. He's the founder of the company. He's the entrepreneur. Um, and at Bankers Trust, him and I used to look at uh, sort of foreign exchange platforms, and I think he had the wisdom and, I guess, the foresight to take an interest in that. So when Bankers Trust was bought by Macquarie, he went his separate ways and worked at UBS, and I went to work for Macquarie. But in his spare time, he built an information site um, around foreign exchange. And he was really just trying to demystify foreign exchange to the average consumer and small business. Um, we both surf quite a bit. So um, we're in the Maldives on a surf trip. And I said to him, and I was working at Macquarie, and I said to him, you know, do you want somebody to come and invest in your business? I allowed him to take some money off the table. Um, so in 2007, Macquarie bought 51% of the business, and I moved across as the CEO. Um, Hang on, there's a nine-year gap there between... Uh, so how did it get from... I mean, maybe just... I know it wasn't you, but how did it get from uh, two guys... Uh, What's the nine-year gap now, right? Yeah, two guys in 1998 to the 2007 uh, parachuting in of the SWAT team and Neil Helm. Um, I think Matt really had a view that 
he, he built this information site and felt that he was getting so much traffic through that that he um, applied to get his financial services licence. And that took him a fair amount of time, and I think he broke some of the, not broke the rules, but sort of made them change their policies about you know, allowing a small startup to have a financial services licence. And he was running it out of, firstly, out of his sunroom in DY, uh, and I've been to that sunroom and it's tiny, and then he ran out of a granny flat at the back of Curl Curl Beach, and there's about four of them. Um, and they're just getting a huge amount of traffic, huge amount of volume in terms of website traffic, and he really felt there was an opportunity to turn that into a proper business. And so in the preceding years, or the following years, he, uh, he just built up a team of maybe 20, 25 people, moved into the city, and you know, I guess the rest is sort of history. So I'm not so sure there's much more. To some extent, it's, it's really just a lot of hard yards, a lot of hard work, but he had a very strong view about what he wanted to do. Um, and so it was, but when you came in as Macquarie, so this was 2007, yep. you've been in your surf trip, yep. Matt's up and running, he's probably profitable or close to 25 staff, yep. uh, and you said to him, what's the plan? Do you want some help? I mean, was that kind of... Oh, it was more a question of, I think, he had obviously invested a lot of his time and had a lot of his own money in the business, and I think he wanted a chance to take some money off the table. Right. But he also felt that Macquarie at that time um, was a good partner for him to actually help supercharge the growth of the business. Matt's very good at being an entrepreneur, very good at the customer side of things, but I think he was feeling the business was getting a little bit too big for him. I don't know if it sounds 30 people too big, but he had a lot of focus on operations and compliance, and that's not his strength. So I think he felt with Macquarie coming on board, specifically me, that we could actually help I guess, take the business to the next level of growth, which, you know, we were lucky to do that. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, just quickly on that process, I mean, I, I think I told you yesterday, I've been through a similar process this year, so I replaced myself as, you know, I was probably the Matt guy, the sort of founder, swashbuckling, innovation, growth guy, but what the business needed was the more mechanical, more, uh, not mechanical, but, you know, detailed, focused delivery. Delivery, yeah. So, I mean, but the process was hard. I mean, I found it difficult. I mean, it's, somebody had to come in and say, "Look, this job is not right for you." And then you're you're like, "What are you saying? I'm useless?" Or, I mean, what? How did it work with Matt? I think Matt didn't have much of a choice, um, in the sense that with Macquarie being 51% owner, they control to some extent. And I think Macquarie were only Macquarie were only comfortable that if I came on, I came on as CEO. But Matt and I had a, we've known each other for a long time, so we had a fairly a number of fairly honest and straight conversations about the role that he would play and the role that I would play. Um, so once we kind of had that cleared up, and it was a very amicable conversation, don't think there was any tension there, it wasn't. It was just, you do this, you do that, and away we went. But Matt really wanted to take some time out. He'd been working pretty hard, non-stop, for seven or eight years, trying to build a business from scratch. So he ended up moving sort of two or three days a week and allowed me, after sort of a period of a year, to sort of run the business and then... He was on the board, and then he'd come in very every so often, and we'd sort of catch up on a fortnightly basis, you know, after two or three years of doing that. So it was a reasonably amicable change. And fifty-one percent is a slightly odd number because yep. normally you'll see investors come in and they'll take minority and yep. back the management team to to build it, or they'll just come and take them out. I mean, what, yeah. where did you settle on that number? Um, well, I think there's two parts to it. Macquarie either wanted fifty-one or none, right? Um, and Matt wasn't not a hundred. Uh, Matt wasn't willing to sell a hundred. Okay, gotcha. So I think Matt still, and the other angel investor, a guy called Gary Lord, still felt there was plenty of upside in the business, which there was. Um, so they wanted to retain some sort of involvement yeah. in the business. And Macquarie is one of those companies, 
It's not like private equity, who sometimes are more willing to take a smaller investment. It's either 51% or it's less than 20%. And <laughs> they weren't interested in less than 20, they wanted 51. So yeah. that's how it worked. Okay, so 2007, you gave him a pile of money, Matt took some, yep. you became CEO. Yep. What happened then? Oh, look, we were really just focused on growth. So we, at that point, we had a London office and a Sydney office. We then expanded into Toronto um, and into Hong Kong, into New Zealand, and now we're also in San Francisco. Um, the real focus then was turning a startup business, which had startup practices, into a, um, an institutional level of focus on risk and compliance. I mean, that was my main focus for the first year and a half. So I was taking the Macquarie risk and compliance framework and trying to shove that onto a, a startup business of 30 people, which you can imagine is quite challenging. So there's a lot of lessons for me in that process about pairing back some of the Macquarie-type behaviour and making sure that we still kept the startup culture and, and the culture of the business, which is a real challenge for me, but I think we've ended up doing that pretty well. So our focus is really on getting, making sure that it was a robust business from a risk and compliance perspective because some of you may know money service businesses or money transfer businesses are inherently high risk. Whether they are or not, they're just considered high risk by the regulators because we are moving money from one country to another. So we needed to make sure that we were squeaky clean from a Macquarie perspective. So my focus is really on getting that part right. But also working with Matt to work out how we can expand the business and think really big. So again, the global expansion really came after we joined, saying, like, let's get into the US, um, New Zealand, Hong Kong, and, and Canada and really build out that opportunity. So I think there's an interesting lesson in there. So, I mean, it sounds you've got 30 staff and you're trying to apply huge company processes, compliance procedures. I mean, that must have been odd for a lot of those guys sitting there going, what are you doing this for? We've never done that. Yeah. Well, so so you, you're yeah. kind of over-engineering knowing that you're going to grow into it? Uh, a little bit of that. Yeah, a little bit of that. Right. Um, but also you kind of need to know where to step back. So I'm um, ex-Macquarie. Macquarie, would you believe, had a policy about livestock and a policy about firearms, and they were expecting us to put a firearm and livestock policy into a, an Aus4x business. You know, go figure on that. So, that, I mean, that's a, a, probably a bad example, but there's a lot of times we had to just pare back Macquarie's thinking yeah. and almost fight against Macquarie to make sure that we didn't destroy the company and destroy the culture of the company and make sure that it was still a really lean and fast-moving machine. So, and again, just thinking about that, period after you, you joined? I mean, well, again, six months before the GFC. So that was a bit uh, yep. of an interesting moment. So yeah. how, how, let's talk about that. So how did that go um, down? So that's um, a really great lesson in, uh, in scrambling to keep the business alive and not in the way that you think. Um, during the GFC, our business has a sort of a base growth, but in times of volatility, it goes gangbusters. Um, and so when we have volatility in currency pairs, it gets incredibly busy. And to give you an example, on average, we were doing around about $30,000 a day in revenue. Now we're doing about four hundred. But on that particular time in the GFC, we were doing a million dollars a day in revenue. And we didn't have enough phone lines. We didn't have enough staff. We didn't have enough uh, banking limits with our, our counterparties. So we were scrambling for a period of about a week just to keep the business alive. So we were getting money coming in, but being able to settle that money um, was a real challenge. And we relied heavily on our existing banking relationships. And luckily, we had more than one. We had probably four or five um, to be able to keep the business alive, just to pay people's funds. And that was the, the fundamental. So it was an operational challenge to stay alive, not Oh, hard. yeah. I mean, we probably left. We made 
six million dollars in revenue for the for the um, for the month, and we probably left two million dollars in revenue on the table that we just couldn't service. So we oh. people we just didn't have enough people, enough phone lines. We had twenty phone lines in the Sydney office, and we were getting, you know, a hundred calls coming in. We just couldn't answer them. Right. So it was a real le- lesson about you know you need to kind of plan ahead of where you are yeah. in terms of your current volumes, because sometimes in our business when it gets volatile, it goes gangbusters. So now we've got. We've addressed all those issues, and we've got you know we're capable of dealing with huge yeah. volatility. So, and again, I just want to keep touching on that lesson. You came in knowing that you were going to grow, and you were really confident at that. So you engineered the process. You probably expanded. You had lots of new staff coming on. Did you go into loss making territory at that point? No, it's never been loss making from the word go. I've been lucky, and I think Matt was smart enough to set it up so we've always been profitable. Right. So you could have over-invested in growth and gone into loss, but you didn't. Is that right? Yep. And that was deliberate? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we, 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 it's a very cash-generative business. So we've never had the ability to take debt out. Which is, there's just no need to do that right now. Right. Um, and it hasn't been in the past as well. But our main focus is making sure that... I mean, we rely on the banks. I know it sounds weird. I'm trying to take their customers, but we do rely on the banks to run our business. So it's really important that we can demonstrate to them that we've got a very strong balance sheet um, we're profitable. We've got a very strong focus on risk and compliance, specifically anti-money laundering and all those sort of things that go around that. Without that, then our banks would potentially not deal with us. And there's a number of examples in the last two or three years where banks have pulled out from dealing with money service bureaus. And you know, HSBC is a good example. Barclays made the same sort of decision. They've minimised their number of MSBs they do. It's so all those things are really critical to yeah. make sure that we kept those relationships because those relationships are really important for the yeah. business. All right, so you got through the GFC. Yep. Well done. Yep. Uh, then a couple of years later, you, 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 you serenaded or were serenaded by a couple of large US uh, yep. firms. So, yeah, so 2010, we, um, out of the blue, had a phone, I had a phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning from... And did you took this call? Took the call from a guy called... <laughs> thinking? Uh, it was a 24-hour business. <laughs> right. uh, from a guy called John Locke, who, who um, was working for a private equity firm. And we had a quick chat and then... <laughs> He had more research to do. Then he called me again about six months later. He'd changed firms. So he was now working for Axel Partners. Probably most of you would have heard of Axel Partners. You know, they're famous for the Facebook investment, Groupon, things like that. Uh, Angry Birds, I think they're invested in Angry Birds as well, um, which is a phenomenal business. Um, so they, um, they basically rang and, and serenaded us. And, right. um, we had a lot of other calls from private equity, um, but we felt these guys from a limited knowledge that we had, were the right sort of people to deal with. And it's really about having... It's not so much about the company and what they've done in the past. It's actually about the people you're dealing with. And so we had a great relationship with the, the various um, members from Axel who we met, a guy called Ryan Sweeney, a guy called Rich Wong. Some of you may have heard of Rich Wong. He's sort of the one who led the investment in Atlassian. You probably yep. all would have heard of Atlassian. 99 Designs as well. Um, Voice to go recently. Invoice to go recently. I mean, they're fantastic guys, um, and so we spent a lot of time talking to them. And you know, are they still active as investors? No, as, as, as shareholders. Shareholders, board members. And I'll get to that. They're okay. out. <laughs> um, so they they um, they came in and they bought a company called the Carlyle Group. Have you heard of the Carlyle Group? Yeah. They're not necessarily known for investing in sort of early growth or startup companies, but they came in. So Axel. Give or take a couple of percent bought 20% of the company. Carlyle bought roughly 20% of the company. Macquarie sold down to to 19.9%. And then Matt and Gary kept roughly 20% of the company, or there or thereabouts. 
Um, so in 2010, we had five shareholders. Um, so a new board, Matt and Gary stayed on the board, but then obviously somebody representing Axel and Carlisle and Macquarie stayed on the board. That so the, the punchline for that deal was that Macquarie was looking for a partial exit? Uh, right? The punchline for that was Axel and Carlisle were pretty aggressive about um, what they were. You said you didn't need the cash, so it wasn't... A... No, it wasn't the cash, it just went to the existing shareholders. So I think right. Macquarie saw an opportunity to take, get a return on their investment. When they're an investment bank, that's what they do. <coughs> Matt and Gary saw an opportunity to take some money off the table, which is kind of the next phase for them. Um, and we felt Axel and Carlisle could actually add a lot of value to the business. Um, and we did a lot of research on them. We felt they were really good partners for us um, and really help us grow. And really, and not, the one thing they did do, so Carlisle's just very well networked and we leveraged off that quite a bit. But Axel really made us look at the business differently. So we're very numbers focused, very data driven. But they gave us a whole new sort of perspective on how to look at the business around our customers and our cohort analysis and acquisitions and all that sort of stuff. So we learned a hell of a lot from them. So we felt they were a great partner for us. Yeah, and that's the feedback I've heard from all of those guys. I mean, you look at um, Atlassian, I mean, they took the money when they didn't need it, and it took 60 million, and within two years of that date, they're worth over a billion and now over three billion. I mean, it's just yeah. an extraordinary ability to, to help a yeah. company transform. I mean, I think, so the company was valued at $60 million when Macquarie invested. It got valued at $170 million or thereabouts when um, Axel and Carlyle invested in and then obviously we can get to a listing shortly. But yeah. um, so we spent you know a lot of time with those guys. Spent a lot of time. They spent a lot of time in Australia, and really again, like I said, they really made us look at the business through a different set of lenses, which I think was really helpful for us. And are they still involved? Can I ask that now? Uh, no. Right. No. So go on. Okay. <laughs> So, I mean, we're culminating in the, 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 the listing, I guess. So yep. this was 2010. Yep. So talk me through w yep. what happened yep. between then and last year. So just a bit of background. When I, I was the one who started, so I took the investment into Oz4X to Macquarie, and in that paper, which I've still got written, filed away somewhere, it said the ideal behind this company was to take it to, to listing, you know, do an IPO. I wrote that down when I talked to Alan Moss, who was running Macquarie at the time, and presented to the executive committee. I wrote that down just to pretend I was thinking big, and there was no intention of actually listing in any shape or form. Um, but that's what we ended up doing. So in 2000, and the start of 2013, we, as a board, decided that it was worth... Um, investigating a trade sale or an IPO. And so we ran a dual track process. And so that's probably the most brutal 12 months of my life is running a dual track process. And I can explain some of the detail behind that. And it was really done because I think the private equity guys felt that the markets, to use their term, was frothy, which means I think there's lots of money around. Um, and I think Macquarie had been invested since 2007, so they think they felt it was time potentially to exit their investment. And I think Matt and Gary were at a point that they felt they could take some more money off the table as well. So we ran a, a dual-track process. And a dual-track process, some of you may not know what that is, but in basic lines, you're running one path where you're trying to sell the business to a trade buyer, and at the same time, you're running a path where you're trying to sell the business to shareholders. You, know, you want to list it on the, on the ASX. So you run that process, and that takes around about <coughs> nine months, and you're basically telling your story 250 times to various people. It's the same story, so it gets quite monotonous. Um, either 
a three-hour presentation to a trade buyer or an hour presentation to a shareholder about what the business does, um, growth prospects, performance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and it really got down to a very close thing. In, in early October, we made the decision to IPO, and it was based on three things: valuation. Second thing, and they were pretty close. Valuation was the first thing. Second thing was um, certainty. I think the shareholders who were exiting wanted certainty about their funds. And the third thing was just speed of delivery in terms of those funds. So we made a decision in late September, early October to, to list it on the ASX in sort of mid-October. So when you think back to 2013, what percentage of your time was spent on that process versus on the business? Um, early on, probably 50%, but the last sort of four months is probably almost 100% of my time is on that. And luckily, if I do anything well, and there's probably not many things I do, if I do anything well, I recruited a really good team below me, um, and they could run the business to some extent without my involvement at all. So... Um, you know, that really made the job of trying to run this dual track process a lot easier because I had a great team behind me. It's slightly bizarre because you're the CEO of the business, but you're not in the business at that for that time. Um, pretty much I would spend, at best, an hour on the business. The rest of the time was oh. just dealing with um, the process, as we called it. And, and did you know it was going to be up to 100% of your no, time? you got no idea. I mean, I mean, I didn't have any, any clue whatsoever what it was going to be like. And if you asked me to do it again, I'd say no, <laughs> categorically no. Because um, you, I mean, you get surrounded by, the most important thing is you get adv- the right advice, bottom line. So we had two investment bankers, two sets of lawyers, accountants, as well as five different shareholders. And uh, you sometimes, as my role is a bit of a meat in the sandwich, um, but you kind of have to just trust that these people know what they're doing. And we were lucky to get a great um, legal firm to advise us the main legal firm and, and great bankers that get us through the process. But it is pretty brutal. And you really got to be clear. And I, I wasn't a shareholder, so the existing shareholders needed to be really clear about why they were doing it. So for them, there was an opportunity to take some money off the table. I mean, from a private equity perspective, they've been invested for three years. For them, three years is probably a relatively small length of time, but they saw a return yeah. and took the opportunity. And I kind of explained Macquarie to Matt and Gary. So. Yeah, so I mean, that's a pretty brutal story. I mean, do you think that's part of the reason that we're really not seeing that many IPOs? I mean, you've got these weird reverse uh, shell listings, which aren't really IPOs, but a true IPO? I mean, there's very few. Oh, look, I mean, I'm a little sceptical having been through it. So we, we've just been a year as a listed company, and you know, I'm not sceptical. I think I learned a lot in that year about, you know, Effectively, to some extent, you sometimes can be a fund manager plaything, which means that you're a stock, and if they get in the IPO and the price goes up, they'll sell, and they're not necessarily as long-term holders as they say they are. So your share price goes up and down, up and down, up and down, and I think that's the biggest challenge we found as a company is trying to explain to staff why the share price is going down when we've delivered a fantastic result. And I think there was a really good example of that when we delivered our half-year result from a perspective, but a full-year result because of our financial year. It's probably the best financial year we've ever had, and the share price got smashed. And um, you know That's a challenging thing for your staff to understand, and most of them are shareholders, why your share price has gone from $3.20 or whatever it was down to $2.50 when you've delivered a great result. You've shown 40% growth or 30% growth in your metrics, and it got smashed. So I think there's a, I mean, we learn a lot out of that process. So why people do it or don't do it, do you think it should, could, well, actually, there's a few questions. Like, should it be easier? 
Uh, well, I'd obviously say yes, because um, it was a challenge. Um, oh, look, I think there's... Uh, it's it, Possibly, but I think there's a process you've got to go through, which is pr- protecting yeah. investors and protecting shareholders and protecting everybody. So I'm sure smarter minds than I have come up with the reason we go through that process and why it takes so long. And we did ask pretty quickly. Um, I mean, everything should always be easier in my book, but yeah. sometimes you just can't do it that way. But do you think it's, it's you know, when we think about the startup community, I mean, uh, m- most of the guys here aren't listing or close to listing, but... Having heard that story, we're going to go, no fucking way are we listing. I mean, like... I just, I think, yeah, um, you've got to have a really good reason for listing. I mean, and I guess everyone's going to have to determine that themselves, why you'd list versus why you do a trade sale, or why you want to get any investment at all. It depends on what business you're running and, and where you are in that life cycle. And I think, um, I can just say from Matt's perspective, I think he felt that he, it was becoming a proper business and he's much more of an entrepreneur and I'm not the entrepreneur, as I said before. So I think he felt there was an opportunity to actually take some money off the table but also remove some of the things that he wasn't good at so he could focus on things that he was good at. Yeah. So that's why, for him, that was a, a decision that I think was the right decision for him at that time. Okay. And so you've gone from um, pre-listing and that whole 2013 to being listed. So yeah. do you just want to touch on this year and how that's gone? No, in terms of performance, <laughs> we don't want to hear about that, but in terms of just the process of oh, I think, running a um, listed company. I mean, I can give you from my perspective, I think it's a great, it's a great thing for staff when you list because I think it gives um, an opportunity for them to become investors, but also I think it kind of um, validates that we've got a great business and gives us credibility in the wider community and it's actually great from a branding perspective and great from a customer perspective, so I think that's really good. Um, as a CEO, it's a very different lifestyle from a being a CEO of a private company. I spend way more of my time talking to, firstly, a new board. We've now got 8,000 shareholders versus five shareholders, um, and then doing things like this, which I think I really enjoy. But there's a lot more time spent, I guess, focused externally as opposed to internally on the business. So again, back to the earlier point, you want to make sure that if you do something like this, you've got a really good and strong um, leadership team or management team. I know for a fact, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, and I couldn't come to work, that the business would run smoothly without me. I've got no doubt about that. And I think the other thing you want to make sure you do is get, and this is maybe early on in the piece, is get yourself a quality CFO. I mean, when you get big in your numbers, your numbers become so important around this process. You need to have a CFO who really understands the business. It's very commercial because I think that was the point through the, um, the dual track. We got challenged, not challenged, we got questions a lot about our numbers and having a really strong CFO is critical to that. So who's your CFO and when did they join? Uh, so Mark Ledgham is my CFO. He joined, uh, when I joined, we basically had a bookkeeper, um, which was a little scary to some extent, um, only because the bookkeeper was well out of their depth in terms of understanding where we were as a business. So he joined about six months after I joined. Yeah. And um, you know he's been a, an absolute... Uh, godsend in terms of making sure the business is really clear about its its numbers. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask one more question and I'm going to try and throw it open to you, so get ready with some questions. And we do need you on the mics when we get the questions, yeah? Uh, so you're growing at 40%, and this is more of a general one, you know, whether you're listed or not, I think is, is, is irrelevant to this question. You're growing at 40% a year from a large base. Yeah. Uh, now, that's a challenge for, for any business. Um, what are the key factors that allow you to sustain that and to have a great business? 
Boy. Um, I'm, uh, I read some article a while back, so it's not my quote, but I'll use it. Um, that an idea is it worth absolutely nothing? Um, it's worth zero, basically, unless you can actually deliver on that idea. And I don't know who whose that quote is, but I think it's really, really important. So I, the biggest thing for me is you've got to keep the culture. The culture is the most important part of our company. And we have a, since you used the magic word before, I'll use a different one. We, we've got a no dickhead policy. Right. Um, and effectively, I just want to hire smart and happy people. Um, because smart and happy people don't take up my time with politics or become, um, as I call them, oxygen thieves. So you spend your time just dealing with politics and people, and I don't want to be doing that. I know that sounds a bit weird, but um, so you make sure you've got to get your culture right. To get the culture right, you've got to hire really smart and happy people. And if you've got smart and happy people who are passionate about the business, then the business will grow. Just naturally it will grow. I think you've always got to kind of reinvent yourself as well and keep looking at what the competitors are doing and how the industry's changing. And our industry's changing significantly right now. Um, there's a lot of new players coming in. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of consolidation. There's a lot of M&A activity. Um, you've got to try and stay on top of that. But to me, the, the critical thing is just making sure you've got the right staff in place with the right culture. Um, and if people are passionate about the business and you actually think you're doing something which is good, which we think we, we are, um, then that's a good story. Okay, I, I lied. I've got one more question just sure. off the back of that. Uh, how do you process, if I, if that's a word, the hiring of that many people according to the culture criteria that you've got? So are you asking how do we maintain the culture? Yeah, so the, the, the hiring, because you've got you know, probably several layers of management now and they're hiring at all different levels. So how do you know when you're hiring a person that they're going to fit these cultural values? Um, we, so we've been really strong within the company about promoting from within. So our new head of Asia PAC from a sales and service perspective, started on the desk as a, as a customer service person. So we try and promote everybody from within. And if they get promoted from within, they're normally the right culture. So we trust them when they're recruiting people to bring the same sort of people in who are going to fit in. Um, so there's a little bit of that. Um, it's a challenge, though, as we've got 230 people, six officers. I can't keep on top of everybody who's being hired. So I just have to trust that the guys are, and the girls are bringing in the right sort of people to, to make sure that we maintain the culture. And I think we're pretty good at identifying who's going to work and who's not going to work. Because I think that's, um, that's really important, really important. Okay, enough from me. So uh, any questions? Please. No. Ah, there we go. Thank you. <coughs> Otherwise, I was going to start picking on you. Hi, um, I'm Mark Austin from Cashbricks. We're a, a startup that's just about to go to, to market in the next month. And we've been having some chats with uh, with Gary actually, but that's another story. Um, what, what I'm interested in is um, how you how you got from well, it's probably a little earlier than you had. You said you mentioned you had offices outside the country when you joined. We had we just had the London office up and running with about four people. So what what I'm interested in is how you get from the from being uh, relatively successful in Australia to opening those other offices around the place, what the process is like. Uh, the, the thought process or just the oh, actual... And, and the delivery of that um, process. The thought process was that we felt that we had a, a global proposition. Um, so there's no reason we couldn't take that in a multitude of countries. Um, we don't necessarily need to have an office in some countries where we service people, but in some countries we do. 
Um, so we felt, though, having a presence in some of the major locations was really important from a marketing perspective because we do most of our marketing online and, you know, and every country's slightly different. I mean, the thought process was really around we want to grow, we want to be a global business, where's the right location, and then how do we staff it with the right people? Um, and we had the opportunity to do that because the business was still growing here. We were making you know, a lot of cash, so we had money to spend. Um, and we just felt there was a huge opportunity. I mean, the good thing about international payments and the space that we play, it's, it's a massive market. I mean, we probably would have, at best, and someone might correct me if I'm wrong, but we've tried to, tried to size the market and work out how much market share that we've got. It's almost impossible to do that, but we think we might have, at best, 5% of the market in Australia, which is our most mature um, market. So in the other geographies, you know, in the US right now, We've got next to nothing, um, but we're still growing. So just one, one quick question. What are the licensing on those countries? Uh, it's painful. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you have to go through that process. It's like the cost of doing business. It's like real estate. It's like um, the cost of having an office in San Francisco is expensive. But if you want to be there and you want to be in the U.S. market and one of, our, um, one of the, the requirements of having a California state license is having a presence in California then you've got to kind of wear that to be able to grow. And so the challenge of the US is it's, it's a state-based license regime, so we have to get licenses in every state. And so New York took us two years, um, whereas some of the other ones sort of weighed the application and gave it to us within about an hour. But it just, so there's no sort of rhyme or reason behind it, but, um, but that's just the cost of doing business. So you kind of have to bite the bullet if you think, it's, uh, if you think there's an opportunity there, and you kind of got to measure the opportunity and, and we thought the US was a huge opportunity for us. So, okay. Does that answer the question? Close enough. Okay. Uh, right, question in front, Glenn. Uh, Neil, hi. Glenn Frost here. Um, you mentioned that you're taking business away from the banks. Um, broadly, a sort of big picture question what do you think is the opportunity to, for fintech companies to, to take business away from the banks? And, and you mentioned you might have a sort of figure in your head of 5% market share. Um, do you think that will be replicated across sort of all the other areas of the fintech community? Um, so first part of your question, I think, it, I mean, from my perspective, I think when we say taking business in the bank, we're just trying to provide a smart alternative to the bank. So we're growing well, so that assumes we're taking customers from the banks. Um, I think the banks... Um, it'll vary from bank to bank, will start to look for third-party specialist providers for some of their products without wanting to build out all the infrastructure. Some of them might. Some of the smaller banks more so than some of the bigger banks. Um, so I think there's a huge opportunity if you've got a product that allows them to leverage off that capability quickly into the market without trying to build the whole kit and caboodle themselves. And I think some of the, the banks and more regional banks are looking to do that with specialist providers. It just really depends on what the product is. Because most of the banks I still think are focused on you know, savings accounts, transactional accounts, mortgages, credit cards and things like that. Whereas some of the, the more services are on the sort of periphery, on the outside, that's where the opportunity I think is. So I answer the question, kind of. And just in terms of saying what market share would they take away from the big banks in those sorts of sectors? Do you oh, think it look, is a sort of 5 or 10%? Yeah, I mean, guessing, potentially, yeah. I think we had one, uh, one at the front here. So just wait for the mic, thanks. 
Thank you. Hi, I'm Neil. Um, Alex from Market Book Builds. You mentioned that one of the first papers that you wrote for the Macquarie Executive Committee stated quite fancifully that you're planning to list, and here it, here we are, and it's happened. Um, you mentioned a quote, and another one that I read was, if you're planning something in the long term, you write it down, and it basically increases the likelihood of it coming to be. So you talk about you know 40% growth. That seems fairly organic. Um, but what's your long-term goal from here? Um, and I mean, it might be as fanciful as, I don't know, it might be growth by acquisition. Um, basically, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And the second question is, um, similar to, I mean, related to that growth rate, it, it seems, you know, on, on the way up for companies, it seems like there is only that one way, and that way is the increase in market share. Um, but what are the risks for Osforex? And where do you, where do you, what do you worry about, effectively? Okay. I'll take the 10 years from now question first. I know, 10 years from now, I know I'm going to be. Um, <laughs> on a beach, surfing. No, um, look, I think the company is... Um, the industry is changing quickly, and I think our plan is to continue to grow, obviously, and that's both expanding geographically, but also potentially through acquisition. I mean, I'd like to be the biggest non-bank player out there. Now, that's a pretty lofty ambition again, but ideally I think we've got the capability, we've got the technology, we've got the right people, we've got the right value proposition. So I think we have the opportunity, if we're smart about being the biggest non-bank player out there, in terms of the space that we play in. So I think we've always been an inch wide and a mile deep. We've never branched out to do other things. Like We don't really play in the remittance space. We're really servicing our average transaction size is, for consumers, is about $16,000, and for the, the business end is around $30,000. So we're not playing the $500, $100. We don't really want to play in that space. Um, so, you know, 10 years from now, I'd, I'd, I'd ideally like to be the name on people's lips at a dinner party when they're talking about doing an international payment, and someone says, how did you do it? Who did you use? And they say, us. Now, we've got multi-brands, so it's a whole different discussion about our branding strategy. But if they say Oz 4X, then I think we've actually become a really key, key player. Um, the things I worry about, um, I worry about um, lots of things. That's what you do. Um, I worry about, uh, I, I monitor more than worry about the regulations. And they're constantly changing in every geography. I think there's a lot more focus on anti-money laundering and all the implications around that. So we monitor that, and we've got a platform which allows us to deal with those changes pretty quickly. I, I, um, I worry about the banking relationships. We're so reliant on our banks, both from a banking perspective, um, but also from a hedging perspective. And just so everyone understands, we don't use SWIFT to make payments. We have 100-plus local bank accounts. So for us, if you were selling Australian dollars and buying US dollars, they're domestic payments. So you know, you'll pay Aussie dollars into our Aussie dollar bank account, and we'll take funds out of our US dollar bank account with the Bank of New York and pay your US dollar beneficiary. So we don't actually use SWIFT from a payment perspective. Um, so I worry that the banks will continue to tighten up um, their perspective on money service businesses like us. And, and we've seen a couple of banks, have, you know, like HSBC, have basically pulled out of it. They won't service MSBs anymore. Now, they won't service MSBs because they, for want of a better term, cocked up something internally, but the, the knee-jerk reaction was to stop dealing with MSBs. 
Um, so that's a concern. But, but the good thing about our business is we've made sure we've maintained a panel of banks that we that we use, um, and we we work really hard at keeping those relationships. Um, so they're probably the two things. And I, the other thing I worry about is data security, which I think anyone in a technology company should, and if they're not, they should be you know worried about data security. They're sort of three things that sort of keep me and some of my guys awake at night: regulations banking relationships and data security. Okay, any, uh, any other questions? Uh, Maury? Yeah. Maury Dobbin, uh, Tether Resources. Uh, Neil, you've touched on brand. Ausforex um, has a very strong Australian connotation. Given that you're targeting a global market, is this a plus or a minus? <laughs> That's a ripper question. Um, <laughs> <bonza. laughs> um, I've grappled that question for so long. Um, so, for those who don't know, we run a we have a naming standard more than a branding strategy. Bottom line. Um, so, in New Zealand, we're called New Zealand Forex. In the UK, we're called UK Forex. In Hong Kong and Asia, also in Singapore, Asia, we call Clear Effects of all things. Um, the US, it's US Forex. It's not really a branding strategy. It's a naming standard, and we recognise that. Um, so. The reason it's a good question because we're right in the midst of actually looking at our branding strategy and working out whether we need to move to one brand globally, um, which has a lot of positives about it, but also some risks, um, or whether we stay with our naming standard. And we don't have the answer to that question yet. It's, it's, it's a really good question, and we're right in the middle of trying to debate um, What's the you know what's the what are our brand values our brand goals all the all the peripheral stuff and then and important stuff and then work out what's the right name and do we keep Oz4X as our global brand because it has got a, a strong Australian connotation to it or do we come up with something different and and launch that brand and the challenge with that is the brand the brand name is probably not the most important thing it's what the brand stands for that's the most important thing. But when you are a company that relies heavily on online acquisition of customers, you want to make sure that any change that you do isn't going to have a detrimental effect on your, on your growth profile in terms of registrations and new dealing clients and things like that. So we're kind of in the middle of working through that, that, that question. Um, I haven't got an answer for you. I can't announce a brand. It's just a, it's a, real, it's a, real, it's a really important question for us for the long-term future of the company, I think. Okay. Uh, Josh? Have you got a mic? No, you don't. I can hear. You talked about when they came in. You talked about when Axel came in, they changed the lens on the business. Was it just a far more granular, deeper analysis of the data? Like, what did they, what did they elevate in terms of the thinking about the business? Uh, it was more around. So when I first came in, there was next to no sort of management information. There was a little bit, but it was kind of how much revenue you're making per day, that's great. How many customers have got, that's great. Let's just keep doing that. Um, but when you actually start to analyse it further, you can actually break it down to a lot of different metrics. Um, so we did that, and then when Axel came in, it was much more of a focus on customer and customer behaviour um, and the dynamics around different customer cohorts and propensity to deal and all those sort of things. When you wrap, it, wrap that around everything else that we were doing, it really gave us a much better understanding about um, 
where there are areas of weakness and where there are areas of strength. And we, we monitor that on a, pretty much on a daily basis. So I know conversion rates by geography, by brand. I, know, I mean, pretty much everything about the business will know a metric, will have a metric to measure it. Uh, and when I was young, someone told me, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Um, so there's pretty much we measure everything. And then it's just working out which of those metrics are the right ones to, to look at at a particular time. So it was more around customer than anything else. Okay, one more. Let's take the bearded gentleman there. Which one? Uh, okay, let's go with Connor. Yeah, just a um, quick question just around the dual trade process. So at what stage did you decide that the IPO was the route you wanted to go? And like in hindsight, <laughs> was that the right decision for the business as opposed to the investor group? Uh, so the decision was made, remember, it's a, it's a bit of a game, so you're playing one off the other. So the decision was made right at the very end. Because it's you know it's about valuation and who can get up to the right number and so it's 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 a bit of a game. Um, so it was probably made two maybe three weeks before we actually listed on the ASX. So late. Um, what was the other question about? Oh, just uh, in terms of like the business, the, you know, was it the right decision for the business? Yeah, I think um, the investor group. Yep. Uh, so if you're an existing shareholder, it was the right decision. Um, from a business perspective. Either choice, from my perspective, um, had its pros and had its cons. Um, I'd sort of, we'd done the trade sale part to some extent, so I kind of knew the ups and downs of that. The IPA was a bit of, a, bit of a new one. Um, I guess, um, all in all, I think it's been a positive for the company. I think it's been a positive for staff, and I think it's been a positive thing from a brand perspective or a naming standard perspective. Um, so I think it's certainly been more upside than downside, but it's not without its challenges. And, and there's an overhead associated with being a public company, both in terms of cost, but also in terms of uh, what we focus on. And it's a real challenge to make sure that you are still focused on the business and not on the share price. That's the biggest thing that I learned is early on is that you focus on the share price and you can't do that. Yeah. I don't even worry about the share price. I just worry about is the business growing? And if the fundamentals are strong, over time, I mean, the best bit of advice I got was some guy sold out, and I said, why'd you sell out? And he said, because we've made a lot of money out of it, we're really happy. And I said, well, that's great, but the share price is getting smashed. And he said, look, don't worry about the share price in the first 18 months. It's just going to get knocked around. But after 18 months or 12 to 18 months, as long as your fundamentals are strong, then the business will be fine. So we just focus on the fundamentals. If they're growing and we're happy with that, then the share price will take care of itself. Okay, let's take uh, one more. Just uh, in the middle here are the uh, glasses. Yeah, there you go. You've been waving for a bit. Hi, Neil. Uh, Sachin Sharma. I work as a business coach, and I'm curious about two things. One is uh, how long did it take you or the company since it was launched in '98 to make the profit, and what were some of the challenges in making that profit? Uh, we've been profitable from day one. From day one. Because um, you didn't pay Matt in the first couple of weeks. Um, from day one, so it's it's never been an issue about profit for us. It's more about what we do with those funds and where we invest, more than a question about sort of paying any debt off or anything like that. Was, so, was the rent in the DY Sunroom pretty high? Uh, according, to, <laughs> according to Matt's wife, Jackie, yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, look, I think we'll look, we'll call it a day. I think um, just to make sure that you know we do want to try and keep to time and get you out here um, on schedule. So. Neil, thank you very much. Let's give Neil a round of applause. That was excellent.